Our passage this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word for us today. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks, lead pastor here. We'll be taking you through the word. We recently, just last week, started a new series in the book of First Peter. And the title of the series is, Where is Your Hope? That's a theme throughout the, uh, throughout the book of First Peter is the, is the subject of hope. Last week we uh, we went through and sang some different different hymns, and if you if you recall, um, we were singing those hymns, and one of the hymns was "It is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul." I want to spend just a moment giving you the background of of this of this this hymn, which is written by Horatio Spafford in 1871. He lost his youngest son to pneumonia. That was also the same year that the the great Chicago fire took out about half of the city, including including his business. Now, by 1873, he he had rebuilt his business, not to exactly where it was, but it was on the way. It was beginning to prosper. Things were going well. And his wife and their four daughters and he were were going to take a, a trip to Europe. And so they booked passage to sail across the Atlantic, and just as, as he was getting ready to, to get ready to go, there was an issue with his business, and he had to stay behind. He sent his wife and his four daughters on, and he ensure, assured them that I'll join you soon. Well, he received a telegraph as that particular ship collided with another ship, and it sank in 12 minutes. Spafford's wife survived, all his daughters died, and she wired him the following, saved alone, what shall I do? He booked passage as soon as he could to meet her in Europe, and as he was sailing and the ship was going over the very area where the, his wife's ship and his four daughters now were in their watery grave, he penned these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How can it be well with a man's soul as he steams over a place where his four daughters 
are thousands of feet below him in the ice cold Atlantic. How could that possibly, how could that possibly evoke, evoke the statement, it is well with my soul? Is he delusional? There, the, he's not delusional. What Spafford understands is, is what First Peter talked about last week and is going to talk about this week. This world is not our home. If his hope, if his hope was in this world, you can't possibly be well in your soul. Spafford's soul was well because he had a living hope. He had a living hope. Uh, this first Peter study where many of you are going through the companion Bible study and it's, it's sparking a lot of great discussion. I got a lot of number, or a number of texts last week, a number of emails. One of the emails which I, I received, um, great question, great question. I thought I got to put this in the sermon. So here's the email, at least condensed. Last week, Paul's trip quote confused me and, and Paul's trip quote is as follows. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. Again, let me read it again. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. This person went on to write, to me, that sounds like the definition of faith rather than hope. It's the guaranteed result that confuses me. If it's guaranteed, there's no need for hope. Was, was Tripp basing that on a particular scripture? What led him to that decision? Does the person with hope know that the result is guaranteed? Horatio Spafford did. That's the only reason, that's the only reason that a man like him can have hope in the midst of pain. There is so much pain in this world. There is so much pain seated here in this auditorium right now. No, you didn't lose your daughters in a shipwreck where all four of them went down. But I guarantee you there are people that are sitting here right now that are struggling to, to, to go on wondering if there is any hope. Some of you have buried people you love very recently. Some of you are struggling with a terminal diagnosis or you have someone that you love is struggling with a terminal diagnosis. Some of you, the people that you love are enslaved to sin and that sin is killing them. And you're supposed to just sing hymns about it's well with your soul? Yes! If your hope is in Christ, yes. Yes. But how? How? That's the question. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the nature of hope and we're going to seek to understand it through the word of God so that your hope is not this delusional fantasy that just helps you cope in the midst of painful times. But hope which is living, hope which is substantial, hope which is real, hope which is eternal. And we're going to look at the nature of that hope. Three things. Well, what's hope's nature? Secondly, the testing of hope, hope's testing, if it's real, if it's substantial, it's got to undergo some tests. If it doesn't pass those tests, it's not real. And then lastly, hope's realization. How do we realize that hope? So turn your Bibles to 
the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 3. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you. We need that kind of hope. And Lord, there are people right now who are struggling to just get through the day. They're in pain, emotional, spiritual, some physical pain. Spirit, meet us where we are at. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that the gospel would be clear, that you would give hope where there is no hope. And Father, you would encourage those who need encouraged, convict those who need conviction. Lord, we pray all this that Christ might be lifted up and we might be drawn to him and that he might be worshiped and exalted this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first of all, the nature of hope. Let's look at the text. What does the text say about this hope? What does the text say about this hope? Let's take a look. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, and this is what we looked at last week, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. So if you missed last week, you can go back and listen to it online. So that's the object of our hope. It's it's the hope in Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, what does it say about that hope? Let's look at verse four here. Look at four and five. So it says that this hope is an inheritance. It's an inheritance to to the the children of God. It's inheritance. But what what specifically about this inheritance? What else does it say? This inheritance is is imperishable. It's imperishable. It will never never go away. It's it's undefiled. That means it's pure. There's nothing false. There's nothing nothing tainted about it. It's, It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's unfading. It will be just as substantial 10,000 years from now as it is right now. It's kept. It's kept in heaven. So its location is not here. This is what we were looking at last week. This world is not our home. It's kept in heaven. So we don't, we don't, we're not the possessors of it. We don't, we're not, not holding it right now. We're in anticipation of it. So it's kept in heaven, but keep reading. There's more who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's living, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven, it's guarded, and it's ready to be revealed. So that's what the text says. That's what the text says about this hope. Now let's bear down on the nature of hope and faith, and how, how they go together. Because this was the, this was the nature of the question that the, the, the emailer uh, sent. What's the nature of hope? I'm, I'm, uh, what's the nature of faith? Are, are they the same thing? Are they different? How does this work? Those are great questions. Those are great questions. We're going to take a look at a verse which is not in First Peter, but it's a classic verse which helps us hone in on understanding what is hope and what is faith and how the two interplay together. This is Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews says, now faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That the word that's translated assurance in the ESV, in the King James, it's translated substance. The word literally means stuff, that which you can grab a hold of. You can just grab it. 
And, and so it's the assurance. It's, it's real. It's tangible. It's palpable. So faith is the assurance. It's the substance of things hoped for. You could also say faith is the conviction of things not seen. Okay, let's break it down. Faith, faith, there's the Greek word there, is it means that which evokes trust. Now this is a noun. This is a person, you can have faith. That faith is, is a noun. It's a, it's a thing. There's also the, 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 uh, the form of the word faith in the Greek, which is the verb, which is to believe, to believe. It's just the verb form. It's like Google is a noun, yes? It's also a verb. I Googled something. So same thing with faith. Faith is, is, a, is something. It's, it's that which evokes trust, but it's also to, 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 to believe is, is to have faith. So that's what it is. Faith is that which evokes trust. Now, two things about that. Faith is that which evokes trust. Trust in what? What are we talking about here? Trust in who are we trusting? Who, who is, who is the, who's the author of Hebrews implying that our trust, we're trusting someone. We're trusting whom? We're trusting Christ. We're trusting Christ. So one thing about faith is the person who's making the promise. That's the object of our faith. There is a person that the trust is in. Our faith is in Christ. Christ is the one. He is the person making the promise. Does it make sense? So there is the person making the promise. Then there is my choice your choice to trust the one making the promise. So there is the person making the promise, Jesus. I tell you the truth. I am going away to prepare a place for you. So that's the person. He's making a promise. I tell you the truth. It's better that I go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit. He's with you now, but he will be in you. So Jesus is the person. He's making this promise. So that's only part of faith. That's just a statement. That's a person with a statement, a person with a promise. Then there is what I do with that promise. My faith is me trusting the person who's making the promise. Does that make sense? That's what faith is. Faith is trusting someone who has made a promise. Now, what is hope then? Hope is expect, expectation. It's that which Jesus promised. It's me looking forward to the realization of what he promised. So do you see, faith and hope are, are like, like, a, like a quarter. On, and if you had a quarter in your pocket and you turned it out, on one side is heads and what's on the other side? Tails. So can you have a quarter that only has just heads? No, no. So whenever a person has faith, regardless of what that faith is in, even if it's misplaced, if a person has faith, they simultaneously have hope because they're expecting that which they are trusting to deliver something for them. Does that make sense? So that's how faith and hope work together. That's how faith and hope work together. Now, to, to the question, is this hope guaranteed though? 
Well, that depends entirely on who's making the promise. It depends entirely on who is making the promise. For example, oh gosh, this was years ago. My daughter's 27 now. I think she was seven, so maybe 20 years ago. 20 years ago, she had a thing about thunderstorms. She hated thunder. She hated thunderstorms. They, 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 they scared her. She was frightened. And she would always ask, Dad, is there going to be a thunderstorm tonight before she go to bed? And I say, I don't know, Caitlin. She goes, well, look on your, your Weather Channel app. What percent chance? She'd always ask that. What percent chance? So I'd pull out the Weather Ch- Channel app, and it's like, 50% chance. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means that it means you toss a coin 50 50. Maybe, yes or no. I don't know. There's a good chance. And so it would always, is there going to be a thunderstorm? What percent chance? So, and, and I think it was a stall tactic because she just didn't want to go to bed. But this is, this is in the middle of January, 20 years ago. And she says, Dad, is there going to be a thunderstorm tonight? No. She goes, are you sure? Yes. Well, what percent chance? Zero percent chance. How can you be sure? I said, Caitlin, it's January. It's freezing cold. There's not going to be a thunderstorm. But how can you be sure? Caitlin, and Ryan is there too. I guarantee you, there is not going to be a thunderstorm. If there is a thunderstorm tonight, I will eat my underwear tomorrow morning. Brilliant, brilliant guarantee. You know what happens next, don't you? <laughs> it's two in the morning, and I'm, I'm awakened by the rumbling of thunder. <laughs> Here's what happened. The moment, the words, I guarantee you, I will eat my underwear if there's thunder slipped out of my mouth. In heaven, the angels were rejoicing. <laughs> Gabriel's like, Michael, check this out. (laughs) Look at that moron down there. He's guaranteeing his daughter that it's not going to thunder. What a complete moron. We know what the father's going to do at this point, don't we? He's going to teach said moron a lesson. You cannot guarantee things you have no ability to influence the outcome over. Some of you are like, did you really eat your underwear? Technically, no. I got a pair of tidy whities out of the drawer. They were clean, and I shoved them into my mouth as best as I possibly could to the utter delight of both my daughter and my son. But I learned my lesson. You cannot guarantee things you have no ability to influence the outcome over. So the guarantee is only as good as the person making the promise. So if your faith is in me and I say, I guarantee you that this or that will happen, that is a completely misplaced faith. I can make you promises and I can influence the outcome to the best of my ability, but a promise is only as good as the person making the promise. And a guarantee is only as strong as the person making the promise. Does the person have the ability to, to guarantee the outcome? And in my case, in terms of preventing thunder in January, no. It's completely out of the realm of my control. I have no business making a promise. That's why you've heard me tell the story. I think I learned my lesson later. We're on a flight getting ready to take off. And my daughter, she's afraid to fly. She says, dad, are, 
are we going to die? I'm like, yes. Yeah, no, I mean today. I don't know. We might. Some of you are like, you are a terrible father. I'd already made one promise about the non-thunder issue. I'm certainly not going to make a promise about a flight I can't control. I said, probably, but I said, probably not. Probably not. We'll probably be okay. And that's why you have to know Jesus. Some of you are like, I still think you're a bad father. Well, she's 27 and she's married and now it's her husband's issue. So <laughs> I messed her up and now it's between him and Jesus to, no, that's not true. She's very, she's very, very stable, loves Jesus. Sorry, I'm getting off track. So is hope guaranteed? It depends on who's making the promise. Now, hope is guaranteed because of the person making the promise. Let's take a look at the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That smacks of a guarantee, does it not? It is. It is. But Jesus... How can you be sure? Because I spoke the universe into existence by the word of my mouth? Yeah, but how can you be sure that death won't rob me of that promise? Because I conquered sin and death? But how can I be sure that you conquered sin and death? Because I was crucified under Pontius Pilate? and rose again on the third day, and appeared to the women first, then Peter, then the rest of the apostles, then more than 500 people at the same time, then I appeared to the apostle Paul, before he was even my follower? How can I be sure? Because I conquered sin and death, created the universe, and I will return just in the same way that I have departed. It's a guarantee. But how can I be sure? You're just going to have to trust me. But I'm guaranteeing you that it is a reality that's going to happen. I will make good on all my promises. Do you see the, the vast difference between the promise that we make to our kids and the promise that Jesus makes to us? Parents have, we have some ability to, to make good on our promises. But we didn't create the universe and we didn't, we didn't conquer sin and death. We didn't, we didn't rise again. See, it's, it's hinged on the resurrection. It is a guarantee, but it's not yet realized. We don't have it yet. I don't have a hold of it yet. It's, it's future tense. It's something, my faith is present tense. That's in the person and work of Jesus. My hope is in what Jesus promised, which I don't yet have. Okay, so that's the nature. That's the nature. Now let's get to the testing. Let's get to, this, this is the testing. This is what Horatio Spafford experienced. This is what you experience. This is what all of us experience when we suffer, when we go through trials. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I got another text later in, in the week from someone else. 
And we went back and forth on some of the things they were wrestling with in this First Peter study and talking about the idea resonating very clearly. This idea of us being exiles makes sense. Makes sense. And this, this whole thought of, of our, our hope being in, in a future time with Jesus, it makes sense. But he was wrestling with, what about now? What about now? And we're, he was asking the question about joy. He said, the hope of going home gives me strength to persevere. But what if I don't feel joy? How many of you have wrestled with that? You, you read passages in Philippians, rejoice always. And you read passages in James, we just finished that this summer, where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face various trials. How many of you struggle with, with simultaneously having joy in the midst of your pain? Or is that just like two or three people here? <laughs> no, that's laughable, isn't it? Everybody wrestles with that. You read passages like that, and it doesn't... Wait, what? How can it be well with my soul? How am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of my suffering? I, I get the idea that our hope is in the future, but when I'm in pain now, how is it that I'm supposed to have joy right now? Look at the text. Look at verse 6. What does Peter say? In this, in this, you rejoice. What is this? This is referring back to the future realization of your hope. It's not a current realization. So it's, you are simultaneously rejoicing in that which you don't have now, but you will have because it's guaranteed because of what Christ has done. While you are simultaneously grieved by various trials. See, grief and joy are commingled. It isn't one or the other. It's never going to be one or the other in this life. There will come a time when your joy will not be commingled with your tears. But now's not that time. In this we rejoice. No, 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 no. You're not rejoicing in your trial. You're not rejoicing for the cancer. You're not rejoicing that your child was taken from you. You're not rejoicing that your spouse left you. You're not rejoicing that you lost your job. You're not rejoicing that you're in pain. Pain is pain. What you are rejoicing in is that God won't waste it. And that he is going to do something in and through you that you can't do in and through yourself on your own. Let's take a look at this text here. That this refers to what Christ is promising us that he has secured. And here's, but what's it, what's he say? He says, though you've been grieved by various trials, verse seven, so that there's a reason for those trials. God has a purpose for them. God has a purpose for them. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If your hope is placed in anything temporal, and as we talked about last week, it often is, 
And, and these hopes are not always in, they're not always sinful. In fact, usually they're not. I hope that I'll have a good marriage. I hope that my kids will turn out okay. I hope that I get a good job. I hope that I have a place to put my head down at night. I hope that I have a retirement when I'm done teaching. I hope, I hope, I hope. I hope. None of those things are sinful, inherently sinful. But if those, but none of those things are guaranteed, are they? None of those things are guaranteed. And what these trials, what these trials do, if my hope is placed in anything temporal, it will be burned up. I'll be crushed. I'll be disappointed. I will. I'll grieve. I'll grieve the loss. You'll grieve the loss. You know what it means to grieve. You've been in pain. You've lost things. You've watched your dreams crumble in front of you. You've seen relationships just completely just tank, sometimes because of your own fault and sometimes no fault of your own. You've seen your health decline or those of your loved ones decline. You've buried family members. You've grieved. You know what that means. And to the extent that you've grieved, you recognize that this world is not your home. But if your hope is in the person and work of Jesus, then it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how hope, how joy and, and pain are commingled here? Here's, here's, the, here's the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. If you ever hear a ministry or a preacher tell you that Jesus died to secure a pain-free life for you, you are listening to a salesman that is selling you something and you're not hearing the truth. I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, in this life, you will suffer. Number two, there's hope. And God will not waste any of your tears. It's not his way. It's not his way. So that's the testing of hope. Every single one of us is going to undergo testing, undergo tribulation. And that, that testing is going to prove, it's going to, it's going to strengthen our faith. And yes, you're going to cry when you're in pain. You're going to weep when you're, when you're grieving. But joy comes in the morning. Joy will be commingled with grief because your, your faith is growing stronger. It's sending down roots. Do you know what happens if it doesn't send down roots? It's the, it's the parable of the four soils. It, the, the seed falls on the, on the ground and it immediately sprouts up. And then the sun comes. The sun comes out and it withers. You remember that parable? Because it has no root, because the, shallow, the soil was too shallow. For, for some, those, the testing of their faith will result in the abandonment of faith, which will demonstrate that they never really had their hope in Jesus at all, but rather they had hoped in Jesus as a means to an end that he might get them their best life now. Do you see how that works? That's a vain hope because he won't get you your best life now. He'll get you a life seasoned with bursts of joy and success and happiness, but mingled with tears and grieving and so forth and so on. Because your best life, according to the scriptures, 
is future. But if that's what you're banking on Jesus to do is give you the perfect marriage, give you the perfect kids, give you the perfect body, give you the perfect this, that, and the other thing, all these things which are destined to, 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 to die, you'll be hopelessly disappointed. And once that heat starts to bake that soil, you'll bail. And you'll find yourself in despair. Hope's realization. Let's bring it, bring it home. Last week I went about 10 minutes long. This week I'll probably do the same, but I'm at least conscious of it this week. So let's start to land the plane. So 1 Peter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. That's a present tense. You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice what he says. Though you cannot see him, you love him. You believe and you rejoice. Now again, what are we supposed to be rejoicing in? I'm just going to assume right now that all of you are in pain right now. Let's just hypothetically say that. So does this verse then apply to you that you can currently rejoice in the midst of your pain? What do you think? Yes. On what basis? Again, Peter is not a masochist. He's not saying you need to rejoice in your pain. No, that is not what you're rejoicing in. What you're rejoicing in is the fact that even though you can't tangibly see Jesus, faith in him is substantial. It's the faith in things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The assurance of things hoped for. He is substantial because of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. You know that he has conquered sin. You know that he has conquered death. You know that he loves you. And you know that because he loves you, he promises to use every single solitary moment of your life to bring you home. So what do we rejoice in? We're not rejoicing in the pain. We're rejoicing in the fact that God loves us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that they might be conformed into the likeness and image of Jesus. Do you know what he's just said? He's saying, listen, I know you're in pain. I know that that breakup, I know that that divorce, I know that that cancer, I know that the death of the person you love, I know the fact that you lost your job, I know that hurts. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. But here's what he is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. I conquered sin and death and I will use the very pain that you're going through right now to work glory in and through you. I'm going to use that pain and I'm going to use it as a means to an end. And the end is my glory and your good. Trust me on this. You say, how can I know? You can know because I took the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen. When man crucified the Son of God, and I flipped that on its head so that it became the greatest good for the entire world. That's how you can know. But I need a guarantee. You have a guarantee. So, but how will I know? The tomb's empty. That's how you know. 
It was empty 2,000 years ago and it's still empty. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but to show people he wasn't there. That's where our hope is. The outcome of our faith. So that we might obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is a sermon series in and of itself. But just let me say this, a soul, that's the whole person. Your soul is the integration system that, 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 that coordinates the mind, the thoughts, the heart, which is the will, and the body, our appetites, and, and our strength. The soul basically, a soul is, is, is a synonym for the whole person. And the salvation of our souls, yes, it has to do with the destination. It means going to heaven and not going to hell. But, but it's more than that. It's a, it's, a, it's a trajectory. The saving of our souls means that our, we are becoming the kind of people, becoming the kind of people who are fit for eternity, who long for eternity, who long for Christ. Consequently, the ruining of a soul, you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul. That person is becoming the kind of person who doesn't want heaven. Who, if they were granted access to heaven, would be painfully bored and hopelessly miserable. That's the ruining of a soul. So yes, there's destinations involved, but the salvation of our souls means that we are becoming the kind of people who, as a matter of choice, will, desire, and ability, obey God. That's what it means. And yes, there's a destination. It's called heaven. But in the meantime, we're becoming those people. Homework. Because the First Peter study guide isn't enough, I actually had someone come up to me after the service and say, you know, that was so good, but we're just like ducks and we get wet and the water just rolls off of our back. What kind of homework can you give us? And I, I literally said, Homework? What the first Peter study guide's not enough? He goes, Well, I mean something practical that we could so here it is. Blame him. I'm not gonna give you his name. Three things. Number one, where do you tend to place your hope? Write these down. Where do you you, you can pray about where you tend to place your hope later, but that's the question. Where do you place your hope? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Other than Jesus. Of course you do. But other than Jesus, where do you find yourself placing your hope and you're constantly disappointed? Or you're going to be disappointed. So where do you find hope? Secondly, how has God used a trial to redirect your hope in the past? Where has the rug been pulled out from underneath you and God has used that? It hurt. It hurt bad. But God used that to refine your faith. And the third thing is share your answers with someone this week. Share your answers with someone. Tell them. Tell them those things. And then ask them the same questions. As the ushers come forward, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the, look at it, what's the word? The joy set 
before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in communion this morning, the joy that was set before Christ, the fiery trials that you will face, that I will face, that you have faced and you're going to face, are nothing compared to the fiery trial that Jesus faced on the cross when he was separated from his Father. Jesus did not embrace the suffering on the cross for suffering's sake. He embraced the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was your redemption. That joy was the realization that you would find your hope in him. That joy was the realization that you, in the midst of your pain, right here, today, could simultaneously grieve and rejoice knowing that his relationship with you can never be taken away. You can lose everything, but you cannot lose who you are in Christ and the hope of glory that's found in him. So as the communion is passed around, take the juice and take the bread. Hold on to that and realize that that bread represents his body, which was broken for you, which was his suffering. And realize that that blood was shed for you, which was his death. And realize that he endured those things for joy's sake. And he's inviting you to rejoice in the midst of your pain, commingled with your tears. Hold on and we'll come back and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Take the elements. There's there's a possibility that some of you, you feel like you are without hope right now. There's some of you that can't honestly say that your your faith is in Christ. Maybe you're interested. Well, it can be. It can be. Um, Paul says, don't receive the grace of the Lord in vain. What he means is, don't hear the good news and walk away without receiving it. He says, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. To call in the name of the Lord just simply means that you cry out to him and you just tell him what you need. Lord Jesus, I don't have hope right now. I've placed my hope in a lot of different things, relationships, money, this, that, and the other thing, and they haven't delivered. Confess what he already knows. Tell him that you're a sinner in need of grace and ask him for that grace, and he'll give it to you. So how do I know? Because he gave his body, and he gave his blood on your behalf and mine. So let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken. And we receive this wafer, this, this bread in remembrance of his perfect, Jesus' perfect sinless life given for us. And Lord, we receive this juice, which represents his blood, which was given for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your forgiveness. We receive them with glad hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, thank you again for your great mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given us a living hope through his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray for that person here this morning 
who has not yet trusted you, that today would be the day they, they surrender and they place their faith in you. I pray for those who, who do have that hope, but they're in pain right now. They're grieving for whatever reason. Lord, would you walk with them? Would you bring comfort where comfort is needed? Would you remind them, Lord, that you're not finished yet? That when you bring them home, all these things will make sense. And Lord, they'll receive the expectation which they've long awaited for. Your glory and their good. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, go in grace, and we will see you all next week.